Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So we have some updates in robotics, and it all has to do with IKEA furniture. And I know what you're probably thinking at this point. Daniel keeps talking about IKEA on Future Forecast. Why doesn't he just call it IKEA Cast? And trust me when I say this, we know IKEA is the epicenter of all what our future is going to be about. So obviously we need to know what is this about with robotics building IKEA furniture. Well, some researchers at the University of Southern Carolina have recently developed the IKEA Furniture Assembly Environment. And basically, it's a simulation platform where researchers can test artificial intelligent agents on complex manipulation tasks. And in this environment they developed, they presented a kind of paper pre-published on ARXIV. So the agents can be evaluated on a variety of manipulation tasks that involve building and manipulating different items of furniture. In their paper, they wrote, the environment is designed to advance reinforced learning from simple toy tasks to complex tasks requiring both long-term planning and sophisticated low-level control. And getting back to assembling furniture, you know, it can be really a challenging task for people. Uh, you know, IKEA is this European furniture on the cheap, but you have to kind of put it together. And typically it requires both long-term planning and sophisticated manipulation skills. So this environment, which was developed by researchers, is fairly easy to use and it has several interesting functions. As it generates a vast range of tasks, including object pose estimation, scene understanding and many more, it's all done without requiring human annotated data. And in addition, the environment could be used as kind of like a benchmark for machine learning methods designed for furniture assembly or on the long horizon, you know, you could have these manipulation tasks. So improving the control and planning capabilities is really important. And interestingly, the visual and interactive data produced by the platform can also be used to acquire domain-specific knowledge for other applications, like intuitive physics models. So next, when you're kind of struggling putting that chair together from IKEA, you know, it might not be too long when you'll just walk into IKEA and you'll have a robot build it up for you just as an option for checkout. And I mean, imagine that, how efficiently shipping could be made, not just for IKEA, but for other companies too. If they could bring the factory to the shop floor itself, that could be really game-changing. Let's talk about something that most of us now use kind of on a daily basis. Facial recognition. It's been heralded as a secure way to confirm your identity on your phone. It sometimes seems like the tech really is more secure than other options. But the tech really isn't perfect. When you look at public facial recognition terminals, you know, they're quite easy to fool just with like a mask. And you know, there's been real experiments into this and that's exactly what they've shown. 
So there's an AI company called Kneron, and they shared a video and it shows kind of the tests that it ran on facial recognition terminals in China, where it appeared to fool the systems. And in the two examples, they had a tester approaching Alipay and a WeChat terminals at shops in China while wearing a 3D mask off the person's face. And the facial recognition system identifies with the mask as the real face, and then it allowed him to do the full purchase. Uh, in another example, the person kind of feeds his ID card into the train station turnstile while wearing his face mask, and the turnstile's facial recognition system accepted the mask again as his own face. So there are limitations to, you know, this type of test. You know, the video only shows one person making attempts with their own mask, and it's pretty unclear that if one mask worked, would it work for other people, or is it just kind of specific to this test? Uh, also, it's worth noting that none of the systems were relying entirely on facial recognition for identification. Both Alipay and WeChat terminals, they require the person to enter digits of a phone number associated with their identity and the train station they're at. And then you have to, on top of all of that, present a physical ID card before the recognition system even starts scanning your face. So you've got to go through a lot of steps. Also, you probably hope that there was a person watching, you know, if somebody's got their mask on and they're trying to get into your account, that they probably would do something. But again, this is still fairly new tech. Now, Apple, as you know, has their own face ID, and that's directly been tested with these 3D mask fakes. And when the company announced it back in September 2017, they said that they had worked very carefully with professional mask makers to help train the neural networks used by Face ID to reject fakes. And it's possible that Apple devices use different components and algorithms for facial recognition than the terminals in China that Neron tested. But the fact is still the same. Some facial recognition systems apparently can just be filled with a simple mask. And it's a good reminder that facial recognition technology has a long way to go before we can trust it and to believe it to be as secure as we had originally thought. And then there's the thorny issue of regulation. And that's still kind of being figured out, so we'll have to see how that works in the coming months. Now, talking about AI, this is a quite a strange one. So the MineRL competition asked teams of researchers to create AI bots that could successfully mine a diamond in Minecraft. And, you know, it isn't an impossible thing to do, but it does require a good understanding of the game's basics. You know, players, they need to know how to cut down trees, craft pickaxes, go and explore underground caves while dodging monsters and lava. So there's quite a lot of skills that, you know, a lot of adults could pick up very easily, but you've got to look at this as AI. How is it going to learn how to do this? Our way of learning would obviously be watch a tutorial on YouTube and wait for this. Out of the 660 entries in the MineRL competition, none were able to complete the challenge. And that was according to the results that will be announced at the AI conference, Neural IPS. But I think it's important to note that the bots, they were able to kind of learn some intermediary steps, like constructing a furnace to make a durable pickaxe, but none of them actually found a diamond. Katja Hoffman, who's a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, said, the task we posed is very hard. Also that, while no submitted agent has fully solved the task, they made a lot of progress and learned to make many of the tools needed along the way. And this might be a surprise, because if you think about what's been happening in the past with AIs, especially when they try and do a game, they always beat humans, like, really well. Uh, you think of chess, you think of the board game Go, and then you've got a computer game like Dota 2, they're really good at that. But with Minecraft, it clearly had a bit of a problem. 
So it reflects the really important limitations of the technology as well as the restrictions put in place by the MineRL judges to really challenge the teams. You know, the bots in the MineRL had to learn using a combination of methods known as imitation learning and reinforcement learning. The imitation learning, you know, the agents, they showed data of the task ahead and then they tried to imitate it. In reinforcement learning, they're simply duped into a virtual world and left to work things out for themselves using trial and error. And usually AI is only able to take these kind of big challenges by combining these two methods. So the MineRL bots, they took a similar approach, but the resources available to them were comparatively limited. While AI agents like AlphaGo were created with a super powerful computer hardware and the equivalent of decades of training time, the MineRL bots had to make do with just a thousand hours of recorded gameplay to learn from and a single NVIDIA graphics processor to train all of it with. And just to put that in perspective, that's four days just to get up to speed. It's only a matter of time before it aces it. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. Now, when we talk about transport, we always think, you know, what's the future going to hold? Well, one of the things that always comes to my mind, you know, you, you remember back to the future, those flying cars. I mean, oh, that was just so awesome. That future was just perfect. Well, I'll tell you what, there is actually a number of companies out there attempting to make flying cars. And let's go a little further into this. What they're trying to do is create personal aircraft meant to bring a transportation revolution. But you know, this framework, uh, it isn't really even in place to support such a revolution. However, there's one company that has a major backing that wants its product to be on sale before the decade's out. It's called Opener, and it's a startup that hopes to have its first product on sale by next year. And it's really important to note that it has Google co-founder Larry Page backing it. And while that's unclear, you know, how much is he actually investing into Opener? The company, they've gotten their FAQ, they claim it's well-funded and it will not be seeing new investors for the foreseeable future. So it's pretty clear to say they're well-funded. Now, Opener's first craft, which is called the Black Fly, is a personal air transport. It's capable of vertical takeoff and landing, and it's operated entirely on electricity from a battery that can be recharged like an electric car. Now, Opener says that the Black Fly will be capable of autonomous flight, but it's unclear if that capability is going to be offered at launch. And unlike cars with autopilot, when you're flying, you don't really need to worry about as many obstacles because think about it, it's a lot safer to fly than it is to go on land. You're a lot less likely to crash into another plane than you are another car on the road. Like other aircraft, this black fly, which definitely go and check out on YouTube, it's loaded with a bunch of redundancies, including low power glide mode and an optional parachute system, you know, just in case. And you know, once this black fly goes on sale, its operations are going to be heavily curtailed under a new aviation regulation. 
The FAA classifies the black fly as an ultralight, which means users you don't need a pilot's license to operate it. But, as I found out on the opener FAQ, it says it requires owners to complete an FAA private pilot written examination in addition to opener's own familiarization and operations training. Also, we can't count on the black fly to revolutionize the travel through congested cities right away. You know, as an ultralight, it's only going to be permitted to fly over uncongested terrain, and it's only going to have a max range of 25 miles, a speed of 62 miles per hour in the US. But Opener hopes that it can make the personal VTOL, which is vertical takeoff and landing craft, as affordable as possible, just as much as kind of like a passenger car. But Larry Page, he isn't putting all of his VTOL eggs into the same basket. He also has a financial stake in Kitty Hawk, which is a separate personal VTOL company that hopes to have its first two-seater, and it looks a little bit more traditional. Uh, it's heading to New Zealand for testing thanks to its favorable regulatory environment, and it's really important to note that regulations for VTOL aircraft in cities, they're about to change drastically, especially with things like Uber and all of the other ride-sharing services soon to introduce air taxis. So I guess we're just gonna have to keep our eye on this airspace. So let's talk about something a bit more on the ground, car interior design. So clearly we have early versions of full self-driving cars like the Tesla Model 3, and we can see how they're designed to get their interiors to suit that driving style with one nice big screen right in the center of the dashboard. But what are some of the other companies been doing? Well, to start, Peugeot built something called the E-Legend concept, and clearly it looks like something very sci-fi on the outside, but the interior, oh, the interior is really where things get interesting. I mean, they really made it feel like an extension of your house. And they've got connectivity, they've got nice seats and everything. And then you have the steering wheel. And this thing, it retracts into the dashboard. And then below the dashboard, you've got this nearly 50-inch screen across the footwell, which you could watch a film on while you're in autonomous driving mode. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. And, well, you've got Mercedes, which is likewise, it had a similar attempt at designing an autonomous vehicle. Uh, this thing had rotatable chairs, it almost looked like a space-age living room. And when you go look at these concepts, you start seeing this familiarity with the connection to a home. And what you're going to start seeing is a combination of both of them, a home and a vehicle. Uh, but not like a motorhome or something like that. Like, a really good example is the concept of futuristic houses built around the carport. And if you go on Google and you search Tesla Cybertruck house, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. People have made these designs where it kind of builds around the carport. You've got this big solar panel roof. It's all for sustainable living. And, and a lot of people might think, oh, that's, that's for the city. But no, these are really for going out to places that have no power, no connection to civilization. You could literally put this in the middle of a valley that has no connections to civilization and you'd be totally okay. So it's something that will definitely become more and more apparent at these auto shows. And it might even give a glimpse into the future of what house design languages are going to look like. Are we going to live in a glass box? I guess we're just going to have to see what happens. Now, going on that idea of bridging transportation and living spaces, what if we bridged transportation with a workspace? Well, I know you're kind of thinking this sounds like another episode of a dystopian sci-fi future, but you'd be wrong, because this really already exists. Like over in London, there's this thing called the One Rebel Gym, and that provides a nice high-class sweatshop experience. So the co-founder, James Bolfloor, he calls contracts demotivating. So One Rebel... 
they only charge you for when you use the gym. And the company is doing something a little different, like I said. They're doing something called Ride to Rebel. And this is a scheme where there's a bunch of these buses and they're equipped with mobile spinning studios. So the commuters, you just hop on the bus, you crank out your workout on your way to work, and it's really as easy as that. Then you have those moving hotels like Ride Cabin. So obviously if you're on the west coast this is probably very interesting because it's a service that travels overnight between San Francisco and Los Angeles, putting up passengers in individual rooms outfitted with comfortable beds, high-end sheets, privacy curtains, power outlets, USB cords, earplugs and all the amenities. And you check in about 11pm for the trip and they offer you a cup of chamomile tea and before you know it you're at your next destination it's 7 a.m next morning time for an espresso so when you look at these two things you think it seems like the next logical move would be to make a mobile office environment or a mobile shop that people can just board onto when it's downtown but to do that realistically one thing needs to change you know you notice all of these buses they'll have something in common well none of them are autonomous and that's where mercedes-benz is a little bit different They've got something called the Future Bus with City Pilot, and this is something that's really going to change the game. So the technology of City Pilot is in the Mercedes Future Bus, and it's based on the autonomous driving of the Mercedes Actros truck. However, it went under a lot further development to actually make it work in a city bus. So the city pilot is able to recognize traffic lights, communicate with them, and also it's able to recognize obstacles, especially pedestrians on the road, brake autonomously, all of that. So it can also approach bus stops automatically where it opens and closes the doors. And there's a GPS system. So all the data received creates an extremely precise picture, allowing the bus to be positioned within centimeters of where it needs to be. Plus already, this is working in practice. They demonstrated the city pilot on an exact route covering almost 20 kilometers with a number of tight bends, tunnels, numerous stops and it involves high speeds especially for a city bus. But the interior is pretty cool as well so you look at it and it's this open plan design that takes leads from city squares and parks. The passenger compartments it's truly a passenger's dream. They're divided into three sections for different lengths of stay. So the designer seats are loosely arranged along the walls in each zone and they've got these really cool grab rails and they kind of reflect the park-like theme of branching upwards like a tree towards the two-tone ceiling. So it's a very designy bus and the ceiling lighting is almost like a leaf canopy. So this type of thing, this Mercedes bus, is really suitable for city systems and it could resolve a lot of these worldwide traffic problems in densely populated areas and metropolitan regions. I remember a while ago watching a video of this congestion, how it starts and how, how traffic jams begin and it just literally had people going around in a circle and you know it's human nature, we're not perfect and people started braking and the circle got all congested. And with buses that are autonomously driven, they're able to see what's happening up further up the road. So they're able to regulate their speed. So not only is this gonna help with bus traffic, this is actually gonna help with traffic around the buses in general. But getting back to the main point, could this be an alternative to businesses renting real estate in an increasingly more expensive city? Well, I guess we're just gonna have to see where the real estate market goes, but it's pretty clear that this technology is just around the corner and now it really is an option. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen, it's that easy. 
This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. What has the future got for us? Well, when we talk about the future, we think of implants and our body, and it's kind of you hook up like the Matrix to maybe a big computer. But sometimes it's the things that we don't really notice that can make the biggest impact. Now, one of those things is car ownership. Now, most articles about this autonomous driving vehicles, they fail to mention that the initial target market for these vehicles is not the average consumer. It's actually going to be big business, specifically taxi and car sharing services. But why? Well, let's look at the opportunity of self-driving cars, represented to one of the biggest taxi ride-sharing services on the planet, Uber. So according to Uber, and almost every taxi service out there, one of the biggest costs associated with using their service is the driver's salary, which is about 75%. So if you removed the driver, the cost of taking Uber would cost less than owning a car in almost every scenario. So if AVs, or autonomous vehicles, were also electric, as a lot of people can clearly see is gonna happen, that reduced fuel cost would drag the price of an Uber ride down to pretty much pennies per mile. And with prices that low, there's a virtuous cycle that emerges where people start saying, well, why wouldn't I use Uber more than using my own car? I'm going to save more money. And that's exactly what will happen. People in city areas that have access to Uber will eventually just sell their cars outright after just a few months. More people using Uber's AVs means a greater demand for the service, and greater demand usually means larger investments from Uber to release a larger fleet of AVs on the road. And this process is going to continue over many years until we reach a point that the majority of cars in urban areas are just fully autonomous and they, you know, they could be owned all by Uber or other competitors. So that's the grand prize. Majority ownership over personal transportation in every city and town across the world, wherever taxi and car sharing services are permitted. And here's a really cool thing. So Morgan Stanley says that the average car is driven just 4% of the time. And you could make the argument that a lot of things we buy aren't really used all day long. But unlike most things that we buy, they don't represent the second largest slice of our annual income, right after rent or mortgage payments. Your car drops in value the second you buy it, unless you buy something like a luxury car or a classic car, and you know, it's an investment, it appreciates in value. All in, the average ownership of the US passenger vehicle is nearly 9,000 annually. And how much savings would it take to get you to kind of give up your whole car? Well, according to Zach Cantor, who's the CEO of ProForged, it's more economical to use a ride-sharing service if you live in a city and drive less than 10,000 miles per year. Also, keep in mind, you know, when you use a self-driving taxi or ride-sharing service, you can have full access to a vehicle whenever you need it without having to worry about insurance or parking. At a macro level, the more people using these automated ride-sharing and taxi services, the fewer cars will be on the highways and circling blocks endlessly, searching for parking spaces. And that means less traffic, faster travel times, less pollution. It's much better for the environment, especially when these AVs are all electric, 
As I've mentioned before, you've got the Tesla Model 3, which anybody can go out and buy, and later next year, hopefully it's gonna have full robo-taxi, and you could make money from it. Going back to the Autonomy Day event Elon had, he said you could make about a quarter of a million dollars just letting your car go out and do a ride-sharing service through the robo-taxi network. And most importantly, the more AVs on the road means fewer traffic accidents overall, saving a lot of money and a lot of lives. But remember, most of us, we're used to driving ourselves around. I mean, there's days, you know, where you really just don't want to drive, you're stuck in traffic, stop and go, but people overall do enjoy driving. Also, most of us are still a little bit suspicious about robots managing our safety. And to put this in scale, there's over 1 billion non-autonomy vehicles on the road globally. So changing a societal habit and taking over this kind of market, this is a massive challenge and it's too big for any one company to do on its own. So either way you look at it, the majority of people who've lived in cities, they're most likely not going to have a problem to move over to a ride-sharing service. But something interesting to note is that although modern gas cars may not be as popular, this trend actually might increase vintage car ownership. And this definitely is a space to watch out for because you might experience another vintage car market rise again. So as we go into this environmentally friendly future, everybody might start buying these big old gas guzzler Cadillacs from the 60s. And you can't blame those people because they're going to make a lot of money and appreciated value. Now, on Future Forecast, I talk a lot about the growing population issue. And we've got a big issue with resources. And when you look at the research, you know, we're really bent on developing a solution to kind of prevent these issues from becoming a global catastrophe. So let's just start. We, we all need fresh drinking water to survive. What are some of the ways of getting it? Well, there's groundwater and you drill and kind of pump it back up to the surface. Then you've got recycling of wastewater. But among all of these solutions is desalination. Now, desalination is the process of forcing salted water through a membrane by reverse osmosis, separating the fresh water from impurities. And although it's used in places like Israel and most famously California, desalination is yet to be utilized by the rest of the world due to its reputation for massive energy consumption. An approach to reduce cost is substituting the primary material used in the construction membrane with a relatively inexpensive material called polyamide. Now, unfortunately, this substitution comes with another price, and that's known as chlorine, which is a chemical present in the purification of water to destroy bacteria. So in short, let's just summarize the whole thing. The energy consumption required for desalination often renders it as a last resort but we've got this growing urge to subsidize water scarcity on a global level. And we've got a lot more salt water than we do fresh water. So this, you know, this is a possible advancement and we've got increasing innovation. So desalination is definitely gonna have to be the future of our clean water supply. Now this next topic on AI is probably the most critical. And if you're worried about job security and artificial intelligence, you definitely wanna listen into this. So artificial intelligence has been a hot topic of discussion for the past few decades. However, something we don't hear about is the potential for artificial intelligence to take over job positions that traditionally have been held by humans. And it sounds like the White House projects an 83% chance that individuals making below $20 per hour will end up being replaced by a computer. 
and the individuals who have an extremely high paying job, like those specialized jobs, are in high danger of being replaced by artificial intelligence as well. So let's look at the recent research and analysis software such as Kensho, which is this financial software used by companies like Goldman Sachs. Uh, this has already replaced the jobs of numerous financial employees. Now, Kensho has proven to be far more accurate and efficient than a human employee. Additionally, a paper published by the University of Oxford revealed less than half of American jobs are at high risk of having their positions filled with computers or other automated machines. And the question is, you know, what, what's this future going to look like with AI-dominated careers? What's, what's it going to be like? Well, while there are still many pros to AI, such as efficiency or the reduction of errors, a future where humans are able to have the supposed convenience of no human interaction that could actually be detrimental to human communication. After all, human acquaintanceship and social interaction, they're essential to personal and social developments, and many might argue against an AI future simply because there's something lost without human-to-human -human connection. Cheryl Tuckle, who's a psychologist and sociologist who studies the effects of technology, states technology has already created a world where we've come to expect more from technology than we do from one another. But let's get back to that example. You know, when it comes to research and analysis, like that software Kensho, one could see how replacing humans with artificial intelligence could turn out to be more beneficial for efficiency, accuracy, and even quantitative research. However, what if an attempt was made to replace doctors with automatrons? How would artificial intelligence serve as a better candidate? Or is there a chance that medicine carried out by human hands is irreplaceable? And in all addition to the inevitable changes in quality of service and communication, artificial intelligence could have a drastic effect on public policy. You know, because you've really got to think about that. Governments would have to rearrange the working sphere so growing numbers of people would have more opportunities for work for a fair wage. And this dilemma alone could potentially force nations to revolutionize their social and political philosophies. And the question arises, what would humans do in the absence of jobs they formerly held? Would people start pursuing hobbies and other activities? Or perhaps would they spend their time living in virtual realities? But however events may play out, artificial intelligence has the very real capacity to change the world. I mean, take this for a moment. Welcome to the classroom of the future. And this wouldn't be something that changes overnight, but I mean, it's already kind of started. You've got these online classes, pre-recorded lectures that students download and they listen to with their own leisure. And you combine that with AI, you've already got deepfakes, AI, you've kind of put that together. It's definitely not that far down the road. Uh, then there's places like Yale, and they offer classes with a live video conferencing. But at Harvard Business School, they've started introducing HBX Live. It's a total virtual classroom. So how does that actually work? Well, the lectures take place two miles away from a campus in a television studio where professors recorded by a television crew at different angles. In the studio, the professor faces a digital screen that has a live feed of the students from around the world. And as Peter Shafe, who's the technical director of the project said, we're trying to create a constant energy as well as feed off what the professor says. So you're probably thinking, but what's, what's the point of this? What's the benefit? Well, the main perk of HBX Live is that students from around the world can tune into lectures from the comfort of their own homes. But there's also a lot of other interactive features off the virtual classroom. Like, the professor is able to do an online poll with the touch of a button, and he gets live results from the students. 
Students can also ask questions live and participate in the classroom debates. But Harvard isn't the only one jumping on this virtual trend. You've got the University of California, and that offers its own virtual reality classroom. Similar to that of kind of like a video game scenario, where students kind of can move around this environment. And virtual education expert Ingen Knutson said, My current project involves safety on a building site. Also that students can walk around the virtual environment and take pictures of places that are not safe. This is a case that is not possible in real life, and therefore it's highly suited for virtual environments. And that was a really good point she made. So if we look at the positive, you know, learning experiences, they're going to be widely enhanced. You've got the UFC's virtual reality teaching, allowing students to access real-world experiences from the safety of their own classrooms. Then you've got Harvard's HBX Live, allowing students from around the world to participate in lectures. So it's pretty clear we've got education going down this virtual route, but... We've also got AI. So these are two massive things that are going to change our society. And don't be surprised when there's a presidential election that these are big talking points. AI, job security, and virtual reality education. And an important thing to note from history is having one system of learning is not always the best. But let's talk about something a little less depressing. How about the 2020 Olympics? Now, world athletes, they're going to descend into Tokyo and the city's really been making a lot of preparations since they won their bid in 2013 to host the Olympics. So this whole effort that they're putting in is going to cost around $18 billion when all said and done. Like many nations before it, Japan plans to use the games to showcase and in many cases debut some of the most sophisticated emerging technologies on the planet. But what could those be? Well, Japan's already been a world leader in robotics technology, so it probably comes as no surprise that the country plans to have a small army of robots ready to be at the beck and call of international visitors all in time for the opening ceremony. In fact, there's actually going to be enough of them to warrant a construction of their own robot village, and this is going to be adjacent to the Olympic Village in Tokyo's Odeba neighbourhood. Now, the robots are going to be able to help guests with directions, transportation, and even translation. And the main goal that the country hopes to get from this is the village is going to be able to showcase the future in which robots assist humans, regardless of their age, regardless of their nationality, or socioeconomic status. I think it's really important to note there's now 206 National Olympic Committees sending athletes to Tokyo. And Japan hopes to make huge strides in instant translation before they arrive. So a real-time translation app already exists over in Japan. It's called Voicetra. And it currently supports about 27 languages for text translation and more to come in time for the games. And in combination with this, Panasonic is working on a small device to be worn around the neck that will translate Japanese into about 10 languages instantly. And that works vice versa. So the company intends to provide visitors with a smartphone app that scans Japanese signs, translates them on the spot. It's all very similar to Google Translate, just a little bit more sophisticated. And you might think, wow, this is amazing. You've got robots and instant translation. What is this? This is really cool. But wait, there's more. Japanese software maker DENA and robotics firm ZMP set up a RoboTaxi Inc. to operate driverless cars in an online service to ferry athletes and tourists back and forth from the stadium. And tests have already been conducted. You've got these Tokyo residents summoning a RoboTaxi, which is like this retrofitted Toyota Estima minivan. 
and they kind of do it from their smartphone and takes them to a local supermarket, takes them back home. But Japan, they're not finished there with technology. Let's take this even further. Now, if we take our minds back a little bit, we'll remember Japan-based Sharp Electronics. They were the first company in the world to release an 8K television. Now, unfortunately for most, the 85-inch beauty costs more than 130,000. But despite the sticker shock, Japanese broadcaster NHK started on December 1st broadcasting in 8K on a permanent basis. Now, NHK collectively refers to 4K and 8K as super high vision. And with the 2020 Olympic Games coming up and the Paralympic Games not too far away, this is going to be a major step transitioning viewers to what the broadcaster is calling a new era of full-scale super high vision. But what about aircraft efficiency? We don't want to leave that off. Well, Japan wants to use algae as a fuel source for jets and also buses. So Boeing has signed on and they're likely eyeing the kind of global rollout for this as well. But algae is a really clean fuel and it's very efficient as well. And it totally cuts carbon dioxide emissions by up to 70%. However, making this kind of biofuel with algae is very, very expensive. And to bring the project to life, the aerospace company, they're partnering with 40 organizations, including the Japanese government, the University of Tokyo, Japan Airlines, and all Nippon Airways. And to top all of this off, as for the opening ceremony, a Japanese astronomy startup called ALE is planning a man-made meteor shower to descend on the city. And you might think, how on earth are they going to do this? Well, ALE is working with the Japanese universities to design a cube-shaped microsatellite that will be launched into space, where it's going to shoot out tiny spheres made up of a special chemical. And upon re-entry, the little spheres are going to burn up and glow like a magnitude 3 star, while racing at 5 miles per second. So this whole show should mimic asteroid shoes patterns, and the ALE is even looking to come up with glows of different colours. And surprisingly, the estimated cost of this show is only going to be $4 million. Now, I think it's important to note, you know, back in 1964, there was the Tokyo Olympics back then, and Japan introduced the Shinkansen bullet trains to the world. Now, it's kind of hoping to take another leap forward by debuting its next generation of high-speed rail, and it's obviously going to be the maglev. Now, although maglev trains are already currently being operated in Shanghai and other cities around the world, the version Japan plans to roll out could be very well the fastest. So, in the test that they completed not that long ago, they managed to reach 374 miles per hour. So that managed to break the speed record for rail. So the government hopes to have the train ready and running for the 2020 games and Osaka by 2045. And lastly, if past Olympic games are any indication, Tokyo can expect to receive well over half a million foreign visitors to come to the city for the 2020 games. But most critical of all of them is using their mobile phones all at the same time. Now, Japan's largest mobile operator, Dokomo, has partnered with Nokia to develop 5G wireless so that networks can run at high efficiencies during the Tokyo games. And we already know 5G's seriously getting very good now. So, but the companies over in Japan, they've already demonstrated the technical progress and they achieved data transfer speeds of more than two gigabytes per second. Now compare that to your 4G mobile, which is normally around 300 megabytes. So it's a big jump. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. 
Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So when we talk about space, I mean, what what do you kind of think of? Do you think about sending humans up into space and satellites? Or do you think about sending up a self-destructing robot into orbit? I mean, what a great idea that would be. But let's be serious with this, because this is not a joke. This is actually something that's going to be sent up. So finally, we are getting the world's first space cleanup mission. And European scientists say it's a fresh approach to fixing up the galaxy's junk graveyard. And you know, I've harked on and on about this. Our orbit is filled up with so much garbage. I mean, you've got chunks of dead satellites, discarded rockets, and paint flecks, and they've all fallen off various missions that we've sent up into orbit. But this new mission is called Clear Space 1, and it's going to take the first step in tidying up our extraterrestrial wasteland, according to the European Space Agency. So they've got this four-armed robot, and it's developed by the Swiss startup, it's called Clear Space, and it's going to latch onto debris, and then it dives back down to Earth, where both the machine and junk will burn up in the atmosphere. So it's quite a smart concept when you really think about it. Now, the robot's mission will target a cone-shaped part of the ESA rocket that was left in space in 2013. If all goes well, Follow-up missions will target larger objects before eventually trying to remove multiple pieces of junk at once. So ClearSpace founder Luc Puguet said this is the right time for such mission and that the space debris issue is more pressing than ever before. Today we have 2,000 live satellites in space and more than 3,000 failed ones. And you know, work on this project, it's going to be beginning very, very soon, early 2020, and it's going to go through a series of tests at low orbit until its official launch in 2025. Now, our orbit kind of looks like a graveyard of space rubbish, especially if you look at those artist renditions of kind of how much little pieces we have up there. Uh, Ever since the space age began in 1957 with the launch of the Soviet Union's Sputnik 1 satellite, there's been more junk than actual working satellites in space, and that was according to the ESA. Now the ESA also estimates that there's about 170 million pieces of space debris orbiting the Earth. But apart from dead satellites, there's also spent rocket boosters and bits of machinery scattered by accidental collisions. And they're not just floating around peacefully, some pieces are moving faster than a bullet. Uh, Because they move so fast, even the tiniest piece of cosmic junk poses an enormous threat, especially to other satellites and spacecraft. So the ESA Director General Jan Warner said, Imagine how dangerous sailing in high seas would be if all the ships ever lost in history were still drifting on top of the water. That's the current situation in orbit, and it cannot be allowed to continue. Now, these collisions are very dangerous, especially when we're talking about manned space flights. But, you know, it could be an impact on our daily lives. We rely on satellites for essentially everything. You know, we've got weather forecasts, communications, GPS. 
But these pieces of debris, they can take centuries to leave our orbit. I mean, and that's if they leave at all. The problem's already so severe that it's self-permeating. So even if we were to stop all space launches immediately, the amount of space junk would continue to grow because of existing pieces of debris often colliding with one another, and then it breaks into smaller pieces, and it's an endless cycle. So for years though, NASA and the ESA and other space agencies have been studying debris removal technologies, and some of the ideas proposed including nets to just gather up the junk, harpoons, and then you've got spears, and all sorts of stuff to retrieve it, and even robotic arms. And for a long time, uh, we simply just didn't have the technology to address the issue. But in recent years, we have seen a lot of progress. For example, you've got Japanese scientists that are now developing a type of satellite that uses magnets to catch and destroy debris. Uh, just last year, an experimental device designed in the UK successfully cast a net around a dummy satellite and it was a really promising step forward. Uh, another obstacle is figuring out how do we actually fund these projects. Now, the UK device, that cost 50 million euros, which is about 17 million dollars. And that's, that's quite cheap for space travel. Uh, the ESA's Clear Space mission has a budget of around 100 million euros, which is about 111 million US. Cleanup though, it's just one part of the solution. Preventing is another. Uh, independent companies like SpaceX, as we always talk about here, uh, they've been starting to design their satellites to intentionally plunge back down to Earth at the end of their lives instead of drifting into orbit. But so far, it's mostly kind of up to these space organizations to self-police and invest in being good patrons of the galaxy. So this next piece of news, this is big news. So NASA has just created a map showing how water is distributed on Mars. And wait for it, some of the water is frozen only 11 inches below the surface. Now at that depth, an astronaut is not going to need a big machine or anything to kind of access it. You'd only really need a nice shovel. Now we all know ancient Mars, it used to be warm and had water flowing all over its surface. I mean really, it had rivers, crater lakes and even oceans. But now most of that water is gone. Uh, what's left of it is frozen. And some of it's at the poles, uh, but much of it's under the surface, and it's been there for a long, long time. Now, with plans, you know, we're all thinking about Mars, especially with the SpaceX missions. It matters where resources are on that planet. Uh, and water, that's a chief resource. So its location is going to be determinant in future missions to go to the red planet. You know, it'd be really challenging to transport enough water to survive on Mars, so finding it there it's going to be a real key to solving the problem. Now the buried water ice can actually be used for drinking, and it could even be used for agriculture, and definitely to make rocket fuel. Missions to Mars need us to find resources that are available there, and that's called in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU, and that's something NASA is keenly interested in, but you know, making use of Martian resources, we kind of need to know what's available, where it is, and how much of it's there. And fortunately, there's a lot of orbiting satellites, and they've provided much of the information that we need. As Sylvian Puquet said at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, you wouldn't need a backhoe to dig up this ice, you could just use a shovel. We're continuing to collect data on buried ice on Mars, zeroing in on the best places for astronauts to land. And when you have a look at what they're looking at, it looks like a swath in the Mars Northern Hemisphere has a lot of water. 
and like I said, it's only about 12 inches beneath the surface. But NASA, they're not relying on satellite data only to confirm the presence of underground ice. Back in 2008, the Phoenix lander captured images of subsurface ice, and two of these images show how some of it sublimated over the course of just four days. So meteor impacts, they also have confirmed the presence of subsurface ice. I mean, you had in 2009 NASA's releasing their MRO images of a 6 meter or 20 foot wide impact site. And the first image shows that there's ice. And the second image from three months later shows most of it subliminated into the thin Mars atmosphere. But in this new study, the authors relied on three instruments, the climate sounder on the MRO and the thermal emission imagery system, which is the Themis camera, and gamma ray spectrometer, the GRS on the Mars Odyssey. The climate sounder and the Themis are both heat sensitive instruments, and they served a primary role in the whole study. And then you've got the GRS, which can actually detect the water and identify elements in the Martian regolith. So this heat sensing works because the ice is a much more effective heat conductor than the surrounding Martian regolith. And that means that even buried ice has a measurable effect on seasonal temperature measurements. And the ice's depth controls the amplitude of the actual effect. So alongside the heat sensing data, the authors used the data with the GRS on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and they also cross-checked it with radar data showing underground ice deposits with images of impact craters that showed exposed ice. And the ice deposits are also correlated with periglacial features, as the author says in their paper. So there's a multitude of locations on Mars that are scientifically interesting and, you know, they deserve to be visited, but a mission with human crew means practical considerations are way more important. And the big press release they gave makes it very clear. Quote, Most scientists have homed in the northern and southern mid-latitudes, which have more plentiful sunlight and warmer temperatures than the poles. But there's a heavy preference for landing in the northern hemisphere, which is generally lower in elevation and provides more atmosphere to slow a landing of a spacecraft. And we know that a large part of the northern hemisphere contains an abundant water ice, so that really strengthens the argument for landing a crew over in that part. But the question is, who's actually going to get there first? Is it going to be SpaceX? Is it going to be NASA? Is it going to be the ESA? Either way, this is definitely a resource-intense area. And it really looks like this is where we're going to have the world's first Mars human permanent base. So it's kind of cool we talk about Mars, but what about around Jupiter and Saturn? While orbiting their respective planets in the unforgiving darkness are Europa and Enclodus. And you've got astrobiologists and they're kind of salivating at the prospect of life within them. And they hope to one day be able to explore it not just with humans, but with marine-controlled artificial intelligence. So back in November, NASA funded an expedition to put three autonomous submersibles through a literal trial by fire. Uh, they were left to their own devices, and it was all to explore Colombo, which is a nightmarish, hyperactive, underwater volcanic mountain, which is just north of the Greek island Santorini. Richard Camilli, who's an associate scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, or for short, HUI, said this is the most dangerous place you could operate underwater vehicles. Now, these drones, they were certainly up to the challenge. Uh, on board, they had computer systems that were able to kind of navigate on their own plans on the fly, but they also worked in coordination with each other, so it was like one big single electronic superorganism. 
and thanks to their shared intellect, all three robots survived. But not only that, more remarkably, adaptability allowed them to make brand new scientific discoveries. Exploring the oceans of Europa and Enceladus, it's going to be profoundly difficult. Manually controlling the robots on either would be way too cumbersome. It would take like 43 minutes to send a command from Europa back to Earth. And if you wanted to go to Enceladus, it's 79 minutes, so it's definitely not quick. Not only would that be a really high radiation environment and it would mess up with the transmissions, but communications from Earth they would really struggle to penetrate those rigid ice shells, which, you know, they've been estimated to be tens of kilometers thick. But we need to look at the grand scheme of things. Those submersibles, they're not really finished. They're far from finished. Uh, their software and the designs are being continually tweaked over time, and additionally, You've got these extreme environments, including the frigid icy waters of the Arctic, and along with the deeply complex logistics of actually sending a mission to the gas giants, it's pretty safe to say that sending robots like this, you know, diving into Europa or Enceladus, it's gonna remain a dream for quite some time. After all, it's difficult enough to just place a lander or a rover on the moon, and even Mars. And we're yet to figure out how we can deploy a quadcopter on Mars's exotic satellite, Titan. So diving into an extraterrestrial ocean, that's on a whole new level of thinking. But that experiment that took place at Colombo is a real example of one of the best things we can do in the meantime, which is practice the real thing, make sure we know how we're doing it, because we've got to try and get these things to work on Earth before we even think about sending them elsewhere. So we've got another big piece of news. NASA has declared the assembly complete on the core stage of the first space launch system, which is signaling a long-awaited transition from manufacturing to testing as the core stage is set to move to the nearby Stennis Space Center in Mississippi for a hold-down firing next year of its four shuttle-era main engines. And I thought it'd probably be a good thing to talk about. What, what are these engines? How's this all going to work? Well, I'll tell you, these four engines, they're RS-25 engines, and they're going to power the first SLS core stage. And it was a similar design installed on the Space Shuttle. Once the stage, which is built by Boeing, arrives at the Senna Space Center in Mississippi, the teams will lift the rocket up on a B-2 test stand, which was originally built to test the first stage of the Saturn V moon rocket, and they're going to do a series of structural and modal testing. So that's fueling rehearsals, an eight minute firing of all four RS-25 engines to really demonstrate the SLS core stage's readiness for flight. Then the rocket's gonna be shipped over to NASA's Kennedy Space Center to begin final stacking with a pair of side-mounted solid rocket boosters and an upper stage, plus an Orion crew capsule for the whole SLS to launch on trajectory to the moon in 2021. Jim Bridenstine said, Think of it as NASA's Christmas present to America. We're going to move out of this facility, we're going to take it to the Stennis Space Center, we're going to do a green test run, we're going to prove its capability, we're going to get it to the Cape, and we're going to be ready to launch American astronauts to the moon again. So as we know, NASA, they first started working on the SLS program back in 2011, following the cancellation of the Constellation Moon program. The development timeline at that time was calling for the first launch of the SLS in 2017. So it was a little while ago, and since 2011, NASA has spent more than $15 billion on developing the space launch system. And a very specific target launch date for the SLS 
hasn't been announced properly by NASA. They've just said so far the year that they want it to be ready. The SLS is a centerpiece of the Artemis program, which is NASA's initiative to return humans to the lunar surface by the end of 2024, which is a goal that was set earlier this year by Mike Pence. And you know, the Artemis 1 mission is 2021, so it's not that far. That's going to be an unpiloted test flight off the SLS and their Orion spacecraft, which is going to be designed to carry up to four astronauts into deep space, followed by a crewed mission, which is going to be around 2022 to the moon. The Artemis 3 mission is scheduled for 2024, and that would attempt the first lunar landing of astronauts since 1972, and that's according to NASA's current plans. So this coming year, 2020, we're going to be witnessing some major historical events unfold right before our eyes. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond. 